Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Well, welcome, everybody, to another episode of State of Sport Management. I have been wanting to do an episode on being a solo author because we constantly are writing and collaborating with other people. We've done a lot of episodes on that, but there is this unique journey of writing something on your own. Maybe you have a little bit of conversation here and there with people that can help you, but it becomes this very different experience. And I ended up talking with a friend of mine who is now such a big time, no name in our field. Dr. Liz Delia is joining us all the way from UMass to talk about what's it like to be a solo author because I see her write solo papers all the time. And I know it's secretly because she hates all of us. And that's going to be her big takeaway in this episode. But she's going to talk about what's it like to be a solo author. So Liz, thanks for joining us and uh, talking about us talking to us about your experience. Yeah, happy to happy to be here. See, she didn't refute the hate part. So I'm just going to assume that that is the 100% truth. I I obviously not. I I love everyone (laughs) management. Uh, So I feel like I've known Liz for a long time. She and her and I were doc students around roughly around the same time. She was at Florida State and I was at University of Louisville and she had been doing great stuff since the beginning, but she has been willing and has been very successful writing papers individually. And I think it's so unique. There's every once in a while I see someone write a solo paper. I think a lot of times you see it from people that are more, they get tenured and they want to do this really niche project that's maybe very different to what they were doing. And so they don't have those collaboration connections. But Liz has been successful doing this within our field. And so I think it's really interesting to kind of get some of these tips and and insights and things she's learned along the way. So those that maybe have an interest in doing a project that maybe they don't have doctoral advisor support or or collaborators can go go along and learn as they go along. So Liz, give us a little bit of background. Like what was your initial interest in pursuing these projects as a solo author um, way back when? So the way I think of it is that I got into solo author work by accident. Um, So my first publication, first ever publication uh, was solo author. uh, And it came from a paper that I wrote in a seminar, PhD seminar, my first year, my PhD. So I was in a uh, qualitative inquiry seminar and as sort of a, hopefully I'm remembering this correctly, like a final deliverable for the class we all had to write uh, like a portion of an autoethnography. Um, so I wrote one and Mike Jardina um, at Florida State who was teaching the class said, basically, this is pretty decent. You wanna keep developing it, maybe see where it goes. So I did. Um, and then fast forward a couple months probably um, in like June or July. So in between my first and second year as a PhD student, um, Mike Jardina and Jeff James, my PhD advisor, encouraged me to submit this autoethnography to JSM. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, so I will say that it was by accident and <laughs> also just being very unaware of like, you know, people don't normally publish autoethnographies, especially in JSM. It, I didn't know it's not normal to, to, not, to publish on your own. Um, so it all kind of happened by accident. Um, initially. Uh, and I will say on that one in particular, uh, Mark, Mike Jardina helped me a ton. Um, so he is not a, sec- a second author on the paper, but he could be. Um, the rest of my solo author work, I think, is like 
definitely my own. Um, but that one, I definitely got a lot, a lot of help on, um, just a lot of, a lot of reading, a lot of reviewing, giving advice and that sort of thing. And that, I think what he did, um, through that was he sort of gave me the tools to understand what, what do I need to be asking myself when I'm writing papers on my own? Um, and then, you know, you get the review back from JSM and he kind of coached me through it. I kind of learned what do you need to do? So, um, so yeah, uh, a long way to say, I initially got it into into it by accident. And then another thing to add to that is that the work that I do is all qualitative and within that space of sport consumer behavior, which is traditionally very quantitative. Um, so early on, it was sort of this combo of like, I accidentally figured out that like, oh, you can just publish by yourself. It's fine. Um, and I also just didn't really know a lot of people who were doing what I do. And so it was almost just easier for me to be like, I have a research idea. I'm just going to do it because I didn't know that many other people, um, probably a consequence of being a PhD student and just not knowing a lot of people, but also not reading people's work who were doing things and seeing things the way I saw it. Um, and so that was, I think, sort of part of it as well. Um, so sort of those two things by accident and just the nature of the work that I do. From what I can find, it looks like it's this paper. Just want to put the name out there in case other people want to look this up. What subconscious unattachment to a sponsor and irrational effect of facility naming rights? Yep. Basically, uh, I had a class assignment to write an autoethnography, and I wrote about I'm a lifelong Syracuse men's basketball fan, and I wrote a paper about like an experience at a game. Uh, and my attachment to the carrier dome, which is no longer called the carrier dome, but that's how I'll always think of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, that's the paper. That's the one. I can understand that being from Chicago, it'll always be Sears tower and not Willis tower. And I will, right. I will die on that hill. Hard to change. Yep. Do you think it was beneficial maybe for you to know less going into that? Cause I agree of looking at this paper briefly, it is very unique for JSM. So do you think it was more beneficial to almost have an ignorance to what you now know that you feel like maybe you wouldn't have gone to JSM or there were some benefits of being like a first project? I think so. Uh, because I remember even like by the end of my second year of my PhD, starting to get this like uncomfortable feeling of like, is it okay? Like that I'm taking these huge risks or what felt like huge risks at the time of doing work that is just not traditional in that space. Um, and yeah, I think that like, because by that time, I, I kind of knew a little bit more. After the first year of your PhD, you, you know nothing. Um, I hadn't done like a master's in sport management or anything. So I knew nothing. So that helped tremendously. But then from that point on, it was like, well, if I can do that, then I can do these other things too. Um, and so then from that point on, it was just like trying to be fairly fearless in what I did, knowing the risks, I guess. I do want to point out, because I think this is important to mention for people listening of, you talked about how Mike Giardina probably maybe potentially collaborated enough that he could have had authorship if he wanted. It is this weird dance of figuring out like who's an author, who isn't an author and sharing ideas and what becomes too much. And I'd also say that whoever your audience is may have a very different perspective of that. Um, we might, I'll come back to that when we talk a little bit about project management, because there probably is some disconsideration that you take. But for those out there, it is there can be a little bit of a delicate dance of figuring out who's going to be involved beyond just talking about it. And the good thing is I'd say for the doc students out there, your advisor is probably a good safe Harbor for a lot of people to bounce ideas off of without them feeling 
some type of ownership. I mean, is that what you felt like with with Mike and Jeff James to kind of bounce ideas off of without feeling like there was a potential long-term relationship from a writing standpoint? Yeah. Um, and with that first one, especially, I mean, they must have known because uh, I can look back and think like I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> like I didn't know what it was like to publish in JSM or anything like that. Um, uh, but yeah, so in those, that early one, um, and I think I maybe have one other solo author, one that came from my PhD uh, years. And that one probably got like some proofreading from Jeff James and and that kind of stuff, um, you know, providing a quick read and, and edits and that kind of stuff, but but nothing more than that. Um, everything else from, from that point forward, um, like if I do solo author work today, it is like, it is only mine and my co coworkers might know that I'm working on this, right? Because things come up when you're in the office, just chatting about projects. But um, I rarely like uh, send those solo author papers to a colleague to read. Um, I just kind of really own the fact that like, this is my own. And so I'm not going to put that burden on someone else because I have tenure. I don't really need this anyway. You know, like I can, um, I, I, I can proofread and, and get kind of, give myself my own two cents, I guess I would say. I'm assuming that means Liz is going to write a lot more carrier dome projects is what she's trying to tell us. Yep. Yep. <laughs> people joke with me all the time. Like anything, anytime, anything significant happens with like Syracuse or its programs, any, any way, shape or form, they're like, is there another paper coming? And the answer I think is, is no, there's not. But. <laughs> um. So you finished this first project, it's out there. And then you said you did another one. I mean, how how are those different? Because this first one felt like maybe you walked into it unintentionally and it kind of manifested that way. Did the second one feel that way or did it feel more purposeful what you were doing? Um, so the second solo author I have, um, I kind of think of all of them in my head. So I think I'm thinking of the right one, um, is in SMR. Um, and that was a project I did um, with the intention of submitting it to the NASM student research competition. Um, and so that one was very much like, this is being done by myself because I'm going to submit it to that competition and you're supposed to do it by yourself, right? Gotcha. So that okay. one was was much more intentional of like, the first one was I wrote a paper in a class and then it ended up in JSM. Second one was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, go talk to some people, collect data, and I'm going to write this paper with the intention of submitting it to the student research competition. And from what I can see on here, for the people that want to look that up, this, that's the exclusiveness of group identity and celebrations of team success? Yes. Yep. And so that one, um, yeah, that one, I'm trying to remember that I originally submitted to JSM and it got rejected. I can't remember. I think I might have gone straight to SMR with that. Um and, and again, I had like a little bit, I had like, like the training wheels were kind of starting to come off, I'd say with that one. This is me reflecting on something that happened, uh, you know, eight or nine years ago. This eight point. years but, ago. <laughs> um, I did not keep a journal of this. So, so it's just my memory. Um, but the, the training wheels were kind of starting to come off at that point in that I was very, I remember being like very intentional with Jeff James of like, because this is part of the student research competition, like I'm doing this and I'm just sending this to you to to read it. And if you want to provide any feedback, you can, but like, this is mine and I understand that. Um, so yeah, that one was a lot different. And kudos to Liz, two papers, writing solo as a doc student, 
still learning what you're doing. The first one, I say this to all first-year doc students, you really don't know what you're doing. And let's get a JSM and an SMR. That's just kudos. And I love on Google Scholar, it says publisher of this paper. It doesn't tell you the publisher. It just says no longer published by Elsevier. Like, good job, Google Scholar. Like, that is a correct statement, but you could put the publisher on there <laughs> instead right, of right. who used to be the publisher. Yep. Um, so you get these first two tastes. And I get it. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, NASM and I think ESM and SMANS have like student papers. And they are... There's usually very strong stipulations about this. Seems to be a very, very student-led project. You get some, a little bit of insight probably from your advisor, but it's mostly just like idea bouncing off of, but the writing needs to be purely the student. So I can understand why that would be solo work. And it makes me wonder now that you say that, if the great majority of our solo work is either these students that are pursuing student words in the very beginning, and then people after they get tenure may be pursuing what I'd call more passion projects, even though that shouldn't be dictated in a way that it uh, says anything about the quality of the work. It's just doing something that maybe that's a little bit more outside of their wheelhouse because they have freedom to let things fail without any recourse to what's going on. So do you feel like it was lucky that you walked into those situations to start off with that maybe dictated career trajectory from a scholarship standpoint? I think so. Um, and I, I think like, you know, everybody says like, it's not luck. Um, you know, I think it was... Um, like I said, I, kind of like a just knowing the risks and just going going for it anyway. Um, I remember like I have this memory of being in a PhD seminar over in the business school at Florida State um, when I was maybe in my second or third year, and somehow it came up. It was like a marketing class, and it came up that uh, like I was discussing work that I was submitting to journals and how it wasn't that traditional and blah blah blah. And I remember like there was a student in the class, um, and they asked me like why, why, why would you do that? Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you maybe wait until you have a PhD, you have a job, maybe you have tenure to, to kind of do that kind of stuff. And I just thought like, well, if I can't do it now, like, what am I doing here? Right. So I think it was um, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of luck. I mean, honestly, a little bit of luck in that, like the, the first paper I ever submitted to any journal was JSM and it got accepted. Like, you know, that there's luck involved there. Um, with with who your reviewers are and all that stuff. Um, but but yeah, I think um I think more than that, it was understanding the risks. Um, and you know, I faced a lot of uh, rejection of my work, um, kind of right com coming right out of my PhD. Um, and that was facing that resistance of like people not being used to the work I was doing, not not seeing it normally. Um, and and if I was doing that paper on my own, then I was going through that on my own. Um, and so I, I think it was really just knowing at the end of the day that I was willing to take those risks and that um, I kind of saw them through as, as mm. I had those challenges. This brings up, you bring up a really interesting point there. If I, a good friend of mine that works at Florida now, Chris McLeod, that Chris is such, to me, such innovative thinker that I definitely wouldn't like, he writes such great stuff, but when he does get rejected, I feel like when we talk about it, it is very much it's almost like his thinking is so innovative that it's tougher for reviewers to 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 digest if that makes sense and it could be journal venue or whatnot but i think that would be as great as it is that your first paper you get submitted for jsm it's like man that's not uh how things should be it's like winning a lottery on your first lottery ticket I, that's obviously a very extreme situation of what i'm saying but yeah rejection is part of it so do you think that like how did that affect your situation of going 
two for two or one for one to start off and then later having to kind of take some lumps that maybe some people are used to take first before they get that breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, right. Everybody's path of publishing and like their whole trajectory throughout their career probably looks different. Um, and I think that was just something that, you know, right away, I, I was fortunate to have some accepted in those, you know, top level journals and again, work by myself. Um, and then I kind of had to navigate through, um, through rejections like we all do. Um, and, and yeah, sometimes it's, if your stuff's not being well received at certain journals, like steering it in a different direction. So I like full transparency, I steered directly away from JSM for a few years. Cause I just felt like I, I just felt like it wasn't, my work wasn't being reviewed fantastically. Um, and so I, I went right to SMR. Um, cause at the time, you know, sometimes it's just the makeup of like, who's the editor, who's, you know, who's on the editorial board and what type of work am I doing and how well will, will it be received? Like, that's just the nature of how these journals work. Um, and so, so I think, um, you know, just remaining aware of like the, that whole, that whole environment um, of publishing and, and how things can, can be sort of fluid over time is, is helpful. You hit on my conspiracy theory thought of everybody has a journal that I don't want to say the word hate, but they, as you said, avoid or ignore, or they have an issue with, um, and whether it's, yeah, lack of success, or maybe you got a really like couple bad re reviews where people gave very poor effort. So my theory is I do want to have a big meeting where we all talk about, cause it's not the same. Everybody is different. I've definitely noticed that. Well, and the thing is like, you know, I say I, I was steering away from JSM for a couple of years and then I, then I came back to it and now it's like the first journal I go to when I need to publish, I'm on the editorial board. Like the only way to, right. If I just say like JSM, my work's not being reviewed well, I'm not, never going to publish there again. Then like, I'm not actually changing the situation that I don't like with that journal. So by, you know, submitting my my work to that journal by being involved with the review process you can hope to make that journal the way you'd want it to be or have some impact yeah no i think it's true it's it's like we all need a break there's a be from For certain sure. yeah yeah but it's a long career we can take breaks from certain journals it's fine yeah and it, it won't be something to get to but liz brings a good point of yeah sometimes an editor change or section head editor changes and then things are viewed very differently um you can see that sometimes some certain contexts aren't welcomed under one journal editor and the next journal editor really likes that context and so you just kind of you feel it out and kind of learn as you go but i want to switch back to your process because to me this is really interesting you it's just you it's not you and i writing a project and i can bounce ideas off you and you tell me which ideas are dumb and which ideas are good and kind of narrowing things down how do you figure that out from the very beginning do you have an idea how do you narrow that down like Walk us through those decisions that you make internally and how it works. Yeah, um, I, it's different with every project. Um, so it's hard for me to um, to kind of, a, a lot of times I'm like inspired for papers by a certain like context or, or you know, some sort of occurrence. Um, and then I'm like, oh, I want to go, I want to go research that. Um, or, or gaps in the literature. Like I have a, a handful of like women's sport publications from the past, I don't know, three or four years. And that's all because I like accidentally realized that no one was researching women's sport fans and that wasn't okay. So that was my reason for, for choosing to go research that. So, um, I, I think I, I have found over time that I, I actually don't like to like 
plan my research line. Like I will always work with similar theories. I will always be using sort of interpretivist approaches to research, but I don't actually plan out specific projects that far in advance because I've just learned that things change. Um, but yeah, I, when you're solo author, everything is, everything is you, right? So if I have a, a an idea for a project, um, I'm the person who kind of forms and reforms the, the research questions. I'm the person who says what theory or like sub sub theoretical areas am I going to be using? I'm the person who makes a decision on what methodology methods am I going to be using? I'm the person who's going to collect the data. Like I, I, I make all those decisions as opposed to when you're working with a, with a few other people, you have to go through that process of, of kind of debating things sometimes maybe. So, um, I think, I think when I do solo author work, I, I, I like to, I, I think it's simpler, um, that whole decision-making process because it's just me. It's just a lot more work, if that makes sense. Yeah. And obviously it's something that only you're deciding, but I always wondered, like, are you writing a topic down? Or I'm going to say even so, like, cause you mentioned journaling, I guess I was thinking about writing, but is it even something like you have in your head? you're really sure. And then maybe just kind of sit on it for a little bit. And then something brings it back up and you think more about it. And then you're like, okay, I really want to do this topic, but let me think more about methodology, what would be a good approach? Or those are the processes like, that'd be really interesting to know. Is, is it something that's like a snap decision? Boom, I'm doing this. Or is it something that you kind of let stew percolate and then decide on direction and how you're going to take something once you've made that decision that it's spilled over to, yes, I'm going to write on this topic. Yeah. I think it's kind of both in that, like, I'll think of something and I'll just start going with it quickly, but I make sure I like give myself some space to make sure I've thought through different avenues, um, fairly well, that makes sense. Um, so it might happen quickly, but I will have put a lot of thought into it, even if it happens quickly. Um, like if I think of, uh, I think my most recent, I looked at my CV the other day ahead of this because I just wanted to know like when was my most recent solo author paper. And I think it was 2020. Um, so it's actually been a while, which is maybe a separate. Wow. Topic. Who are you? Like, yeah, yeah, what happened? I think there's a reason. So we can talk about that. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, but so, so if I take that as an example, um, that 2020 paper, it's in JSM. It is, I forgot what the title is, but it's um, like, Team identity and women's sport. Yeah, uh, the psychological meaning of team among fans of women's sport. Yep. So that one um, in, uh, I don't know, 2018, 2019, um, Andrea Gurren and Nancy Lowe were co-editing a, um, a book on, I think it's called like the handbook of women in sport or women's sport business or something like that. Um, I am a, a, a chapter author, so I should know the, the, the title of that book, but I, I don't <laughs> um, off the top of my head. Uh, so they had asked me to write um, a, a book chapter about like women's sport and fandom. And I, I said, yes. And then in writing that chapter, I realized there's not really a whole lot to, to talk about here. Um, and, and so that immediately just made me think like my next study of fans needs to be women's sport fans. And I need to understand what does their, what does their identity look like in comparison to things I've done um, 
with men's sport. So I actually basically kind of almost like to some extent, like copy and pasted my dissertation, which was aimed at understanding the meaning of identity of, of men's sport fans. Um, and so that one was a really quick process because it was like, I'm just going to go and basically use the same methodology, like case study interviews, um, and, and try to understand it in the setting. And I, that was also right before I went up for tenure. Um, and as, as Matt, you, you, you can probably attest to this, um, there's just a little bit more motivation to get things in like right before you go up. So I yep. made sure I got that one wrapped up pretty quickly. So that happened pretty quickly, but, it, but if I use that one as an example, like, um, I, I saw that there was this issue, that there was this lack of research in this area. And so immediately I was like, well, that's that's going to be my next data collection. Because as a qualitative researcher, I have found that of, of work I guide, whether it's I'm first author with other folks or whether I'm doing it on my own, I find that I can only, I can, I, I start to feel overwhelmed if I'm doing more then this is going to sound crazy maybe, but, um, if I'm doing more than like one, if I'm leading more than one project, um, that, that involves data collection, um, within like a two year time span, it just feels like a little bit too much to me because those, those projects take a while. Um, but that one was like, I gotta go. So you're saying like you, when you mean by project, is it meaning that you could have one project that you're leading that might you might envision is going to come out to a couple of papers, but you don't want to do more than that one, or you're saying one manuscript is one on... one one data collection. I okay. Guess yeah. So like that one, I so I interviewed Minnesota Lynx fans and I ended up having two publications from that. The other one does have co-authors. Gotcha. Okay. Cause I'm going to say, if you're only doing one manuscript every two years, like I have some real math questions for. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's, that's my first author stuff, but it's more just when I, when I, anything that involves like sizable qualitative data collection, it just, it just takes so long. Um, like I have one that I'm, I'm not solo author on, um, but I'm first author on it. And, you know, we collected data last September and we, we just submitted it for review. Um, so it's ideal if you can get two papers from those when you're doing qualitative work, but it's yeah. Well, I know I I'm a huge like hey, big data collections get as much out of that as you can because there's so much effort there. I don't understand why people get upset, especially if you're talking about very different things, to get as much as you can from those things. Yep. Now, in midst of this project, you're talking about project management, which we're going to get to. But when you're in midst of writing this, what's that like? Because I know I don't want to say traditionally, but at least for me, you have like two or three other co-authors or if me and you are writing a paper. I might decide I'm going to take these sections and I might do those first. And then I email them to you, which then gives me a natural break. And But you don't have anyone to hand this off to. So how does that work for you? And what's easier, harder, different when it's just you doing the writing compared to handing off to collaborators? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's really that simple. I think that it's it's just me. Um, and so I'll break it into certain portions and like set goals for myself. I think that's a huge thing. If you're doing work by yourself, like you, you want to set goals um, and like, you know, deadlines for yourself, because otherwise it just might not get done. Um, and so I almost like will be like multiple of me, if that makes sense. Like in that, like, I want to make sure I get the lit review done this week, right? Because next week I'm going to move on to writing whatever other section I've actually started. I think Katie Swenson inspired me. I, I like to write the method section first. Um, mm. it's, 
especially if, like if you're already like if you're you know you're not really doing a lot of the manuscript writing until you've collected the data it's almost like it's um it's like a nice way to just get some momentum because it's like the method is the method you you did you already did what you did um and so you can just kind of like get some words on pages um but yeah whatever whatever the order the sequencing is there just setting uh like little mini goals as you would for right if you're having a um if you're writing with multiple authors and you're like okay well, I'm doing the lit review and then I'll send it off to you um still having those those deadlines to keep yourself on track um but beyond that yeah it's it's just all me yeah maybe that'll be the title of this of this of this podcast episode it's all me by Liz <laughs> yeah yeah, I think I like the idea of a method. I've never thought about that. Like there's some great idiosyncrasies I can think of now about writing a manuscript and how people get started. But it's a good point on the on the method. I mean, do you ever have to take breaks? That's what I've wondered. It's like, hey, I finished this section. I'm going to just let it sit for even if it's like three days, but sometimes maybe it's a week or two weeks or a month or whatever. Like, do you ever create those breaks for you? Um. I do, I have bigger breaks these days than I would have previously. Like again, when when the pressure of not having tenure, even though like a lot of it, I think is just sort of made up pressure um, at some at some point. Uh, I I do fold those breaks in, but, but pre-tenure, they were much shorter, right? Like if I'm like, oh, I need to take a break from this paper. It's like, I'm going to take a day and then come back because I know that I want to finish that paper and get it into review so that it can be published and blah, blah, blah. These days, I just know I have more time. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when you're working with other people on a paper, when you feel, you know, everybody reaches that point where they're like, I'm just too close to this. I need I need somebody else to to start working on this because I've just gotten too close to this. Um, you don't have anybody to pass it to when you're by yourself. So kind of instead of that, what I would do is, you know, switch to another project. So switch to another project and then come back to that and that way I've given myself the space to maybe come back in with like a more critical read. Cause again, like it's all me. So if I want to make sure a paper goes into review and it's like best shape possible, um, I need to be that sort of critical reader that, that a co-author might play, um, at some point if you had co-authors. You set deadlines for yourself. Like you're like, Hey, I'm going to get this submitted by April 1st, or do you not even do anything like that? I do. Um, and I used to follow those deadlines very well. Like, um, <laughs> again, pre-tenure, like I just, I tried to stay on them and I, and I would almost feel bad for like, because I didn't make the deadlines that I set for myself. Um, so I, I've always taken that very seriously. I think that's like a huge thing to me, need, need to be able to do as an academic, because even before you have tenure, like nobody's walking around asking you, like, what did you do today? And, and how much did you work and all that? So, so yeah, I've always taken the deadlines I set for myself you know, very seriously. And that's something that's hard early on because you just don't necessarily know how long things take. Um, but, you know, the, the more experience you get, the, the more you know, like how much should this, lit, how long should this lit review take me? How long should this other section take me? Um, but yeah, I, I do set deadlines. And then like these days as I'm approaching deadlines and I'm like, mm, I'm not going to make it. I, I just try as hard as I can to make them because I know if I just push it out, then it's like when you ask for an extension on a, a manuscript review, like you have to do it sooner or later anyway. So you should probably just do it. Yeah, no, I, I've had the same thoughts about now being on the journal editor side of, I see the people, the reviewers answer more time and the author of asking more time. But I also feel like 
the more time I give reviewers or authors to submit, it almost seems like it's more likely that they need an extension. So it's like, I know, I know we can do this. And everybody, sometimes we put things off is like, oh, you need that six months from now? I'll get to it in five and a half months. Or you need it for a month now? Okay, then I'll start working on it soon. And right. we yep. all need that little push. Yep. Now with project management, as or actually, no, I want to go back. You've, you're polishing, you've got the last thing or like your draft almost in full. I'm sure we got some answers previously about like, okay, maybe you walk away for a week or two and kind of give yourself a new set of eyes. I want to, I'm more interested about you submit and get the journal review back. How do you take that? Because sometimes it is very uh, liberating to be able to vent to you or co-authors about what reviewers said, even if it's right or wrong, or if you feel <laughs> that you know in your bones that you have something you need to do, like, how do you handle that as the solo author? Yeah, you just deal with a lot of it on your own. Again, you can vent to like your coworkers, um, which I probably do um, a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think it's a lot of it. You just kind of take on your, your I, I take it on myself. Um, and I've always been one of those people who, um, like when I get review comments back, I kind of want to work on it like right away. Like, you mm. know, I remember when I was a PhD student, like they're like, oh, just like take a few days and then and then read the review, right? Like take a take a week and then start working on the revision. And and I would just want to start working on it right away. Um, so I'm and I think that actually speaks to not to like talk about topics that this episode is not about, but um really, really caring about and like really enjoying your research area. Um, because if I didn't like love the the research that I did. Uh, I probably wouldn't feel that like instant motivation to, right. Even if it's rejected, like, okay, well, where are we going next? And I need to revise this anyway, because if it goes to the same reviewers, like that's going to be a problem. Um, so yeah, just, uh, taking time as you, as you would, but yeah, the, the, the venting that you might normally get with, with co-authors or like the reassurance of, you know, like, well, this was still good. You know, we, we, we can send it to another journal. Like you just tell that to yourself. Hey, kudos to you. I'm definitely the person that I'll read it. That first paragraph is always like, oh, considering your strengths, we want to do revision or unfortunately, boom, I'll just stop reading. Send it to my co-authors. Be like, look, we got a rejection. I'll read it in a week. And I'm definitely the person like, I don't want to look at that now. I just know it's been rejected. I know the comments are going to be hopefully constructive, but likely tell you why it sucks. And then I'll move on to there. So kudos to you that you can self-motivate yourself. Like, hey, it's okay. This is great and move on and be able to do it right away. So kudos to you. There's definitely some benefit there. Well, and I think, so I'm really big on like, so if you like look at my CV, I don't have like, I I feel there are others at the same career point who have far more publications than I do. I'm very, very intentional with the work that I do. Um, and so I think that makes me, like I said, like motivated for each project, like every project matters. And, and I only do projects that I think are, are really worthy of publication in like our top level journals. And so if something is rejected or something needs a major revision, like it's not like I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, well, that wasn't, that wasn't the best project ever anyway. Like I'm usually putting like my full energy into every project I do. Not to say that other people aren't, but when you don't have as many, there's there's like a lot more on the line there. Yeah, well, and maybe I'll change the context of this to to provide that exact hook. Uh, you publish a lot of our top sport management journals. Have you thought about trying to go into business-oriented journals that maybe are considered the top in their field? No. Um, so it's <laughs> intentional. Um, 
So primarily because of the qualitative work I do within sport consumer behavior and how like, again, it's just, it's just not that, that common. Um, like there's only so many people who do like exclusively qualitative research within that sport consumer behavior, sport marketing umbrella. Um, you know, sports sociology folks, like there's some folks who would be researching fans, but using like totally different theoretical lenses and stuff, um, within sport management, like there's just not that many of us doing it. So I sort of made a decision right near the end of my PhD that um, as long as I worked at a, at a place that gave me, you know, as much credit for publishing in our top sport management journals, I was intentionally going to publish my work in those journals in an effort to push the discipline to change in terms of its acceptance of um, qualitative research and, and more specifically, like, things beyond, you know, traditional case study and interview research, which I have plenty of that. Like I do that. Um, but I, but I've done other qualitative work that's not as common. So it's very intentional. So no, I, I, I don't think about submitting to those other journals. Yeah. So business journals buzz off. She knows where she's going with all this. You know, if, if I, it'd be different if I worked at it, you know, every school has different expectations with journals, um, at UMass, you know, JSM and SMLR, we get just as much credit for publishing in, in those as we do if we published in like a top level marketing management journal. Um, so. Okay. So I'll, I'll ask that question. Like, let's say you went to uh, like Temple. Temple's got a very strong P&T outline and there's, they rank their journals, but like, let's say they told you that they wanted you to motivate you in some way, shape or form to go to like one of those outside of sport management spheres. Do you think you'd be more amenable to then finding a co-author that maybe has climbed that mountain before to see if he or she could be able to provide you guidance? Or do you think, nope, like this process worked for me at the journals that are in our, in my field, I can easily expand and apply them to these new journalists that maybe I wasn't looking at before. I think, so it's hard for me to think of that because I am not in that situation. Um, but if I thought of it as like, if somebody were in that situation where they're getting pressured by the you know school where they work to publish in certain journals, I, I think if I was in that situation, I would probably, um, I would do one of two things. I would either, if I, if I knew somebody and felt like they worked like close enough within my research area, I would bring them in um, if they had experience publishing in those journals. If not, I would read a lot of papers in whatever one of those journals I was targeting to really get a feel for like, how are, how do things work in this journal? Um, because it's, it's not that complicated at the end of the day, right? Like just figuring out like the styles of papers and things like that and, and kind of trying to do it similarly. Um, so I'd say one of those two paths. Switching to project management. We talked a little bit about this ahead of time. You talked a little bit about juggling, having not too many projects that you're leading as data collection. Like, how do you handle potentially other soliciting ideas if you decide to collaborate with others? I knew you talk, re like, if you've made a kind of <laughs> a recent change more towards collaboration. Like, how was all that brought into your project management side? So I mentioned, I think, earlier, like, when I was a PhD student, not really knowing a lot of people. I, I keep a really small, or I think I do, I keep a really small network. Um, it's not really by intention, except that, like, I am, I, 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 I'm not good at meeting people. Um, I don't like, I don't, at a conference, you won't see me like walking up to people that I don't know and talking to them. Like you'll find me like right next to either Nicole Melton or Tim Kellison. It is, it is just the truth. Um, 
So people but, can't go over to you and find you and sit down with you even? like Absolutely, we- they can. Like, I won't say go away, but I'm just saying <laughs> you will never find me like going up to those people. Um, so I keep a small network. Um, so that naturally um, keeps the numbers down. I would say also the fact of like the work that I do, that there's not that many people who do qualitative research in sport consumer behavior. So I don't get that many like solicitations. Um, and then I'm just really selective on like, if something isn't really within my area, I will say no, um, both theoretically or methodologically. Um, it just doesn't make sense for me to dedicate energy to um, projects that don't really fit within my area. Um, people always say like, learn how to say no. Uh, it's, it's a great thing to, to, to be able to do. Um, yeah. And then uh, I think you, so I, I'm understanding everything else you just asked there. The part about like juggling things, it can be tough. And I have found it tougher these days, um, just being involved with more PhD student work and and starting to have a, a little bit more of a network um, than I did in my early days. Sometimes it's just tough to actually dedicate time to solo author work that you want to do because you have so many other projects. So I, I would say that like, um, if if I know this is current me, I have a, a solo author paper I, I want to get to. I'm struggling to get to it right now because I have too many other projects that I'm I'm working on. Um, and so I think you have to be a little bit strategic in kind of getting some things off your plate to be able to put the full energy required towards the solo author work. Because again, when you're doing that work, you're the theory person, you're the method person, you're the data collection person. So so it, it takes a lot more work. Um, so, so getting things off your plate. Um, and yeah, I think... Uh, so I, I just actually kind of realized that the other day, the fact that I hadn't had a solo author publication in three years, which if you look at my CV, like I, I early on, um, you know, I think I probably had one every one or two years, maybe. Um, and I don't currently have any in review that are solo author. So like, there's going to be at least like a four or five year gap. If I ever publish solo author again, who knows? Um, and I think a reason for that actually is like very specific um, or at least this is the reason I thought of, uh, earlier, as I mentioned that, um, so, uh, Katie Swenson, who now works at UMass, um, we, we research in like similar spaces in that we both exclusively do qualitative research and we both research sport fans. Um, we don't use like the, the same exact methodologies all the time. We don't use the same, same theories all the time, actually sort of never. Um, but there's enough common space there that it makes sense for us to collaborate when we can. Um, and we've had some like sort of bigger ideas more recently. Um, and, you know, both both her with her ideas and me with my ideas, they might actually otherwise be solo author papers, but it's like, well, hey, Katie, or hey, Liz, like you want to work on this? Sure. Um, so it's, it's actually um, a really good situation of finding somebody to, cl- to collaborate with, but then also having them be your coworker. Um, it's... Uh, so, so Katie might be the reason why I have, I'm, I might be blaming Katie maybe, uh, for, <laughs> for some, some things that might otherwise be solo author, but I have either already asked her to be part of them or am currently like, we're currently working on things. Um, and so, yeah, that, and that's okay. Like it, it, there's nothing like amazing. Um, I've never really thought about my solo author work in any particular way. Like, it's just, it's just work that I've published. Um, like you're asking me to, to talk about it here on the podcast. So that makes me think about it. 
Nicole Melton, she'll, she'll like remind me sometimes of the number of solo author papers I have, but otherwise, like, I don't really think about it. Um, and if I never publish solo author again, like, that's fine. As long as I keep publishing and, and do like meaningful work, if I'm doing it with other people, that that's okay. Um, it's, it's different. It really does allow you, I guess, to demonstrate that like you can do a whole project from start to finish. Um, but it's not for everyone and you don't necessarily have to do it. Well, first of all, I am going to blame Katie. She ruined this, uh, this rare and rapidly extinct line of, of, of scholars that are out there doing solo work, but no, it's, I think what was so interesting to me for this is I I've seen your work. I followed your work. And, and I say that for everyone knows like Liz, and I do very different research. Like I've never thought about publishing with Liz. Cause I don't even know what the heck I would bring up. That would be intriguing to you and vice versa. But to me, it's like, we were, we kind of went into this system at roughly about the same time. So it was good to see competitively what you were being successful at. But also I know that you weren't purposely like, like I joked in the very beginning of this, like, no, Liz hates everybody. That's why she had solo work. Well, of course not. Like it's, that's why I think it's so interesting is you're not purposely doing this. It's just kind of how it's manifested in the beginning. And then I think you got really good at it. And then you realize, Hey, there's some benefits to this and I'll just keep doing it this way. But if the right situation comes across, if, if like another person was just like me doing similar projects, doing a similar methodology, like you would have no problem for that. It wouldn't be something like, Hey, you know, I've kind of got this solo thing and that's like who I'm known for. Like I'm not going to go back into the band or whatever. So to me, that's what's so interesting to me is it's like, this is something that you got better and better at. But I do think it probably should happen more in our field that you rarely see solo work. And to me, it's, I think first the thought is like, wow, it's just so much work, but it's like, you know what, there's some benefits to that too. Like, like you said, this is like, it's easier to hold on to deadlines. It's also easier just to have a, a very clear and pure research idea that doesn't get muddled with different ideologies or different processes, at least until the reviewer process. I mean, is that kind of how you look at it is it's made it simpler at times, but now you also see the benefits of collaboration. Yeah. And and like, again, that might be like reverse of, of other people who might, you know, early on do a bunch of work with other people and then start to learn how to do solo author work. So um, yeah, I think it's kind of been different for me, but yeah, I think, um, I think either, I think either is, is fine. Um, and I think our most impactful work in the field will be our most impactful work in the field. Like it's not, I mean, maybe people read things more because certain authors are on them. That That's probably the truth. Um, but whether something has, you know, a really meaningful piece, whether it has one author, two authors, three authors, four authors, um, it's going to be meaningful no matter what. Um, and so I, I just, uh, I don't get that hung up on who's on this paper or like if I add another, another person to a paper, because I think they'll, you know, be a good contributor. I don't think, oh, well that moves it from a, a, a one author paper to a two author paper or a two author paper to the three author paper. Like if that's going to make the work better, um, then that's going to make the work better. I will say that I never think of it from a point of like, I want to do this project, but I don't have like the time I need people to help. Like that's, that's just me. Like, you know, pushing off things I should be able to do on, on other people. It's more so like if someone I think can meaningfully contribute theoretically, methodologically, whatever it might be, um, I will invite them onto the paper because the work will be better. Now, what would be the advice you'd give to doc students? Someone's wanting or like someone that's new to this, it doesn't have to be a doc student, but someone that's doing a solo project for the first time, what would be like the very quick recommendations or guidance you'd give for that person? 
I think first, like, again, this probably comes from like me kind of feeling like solo author work is great. And, but so is multi-author work. I think stopping to ask yourself, like, if you're thinking like, this is going to be something I do and it's going to be solo author, ask yourself maybe why, um, or like, what's your motive for, for doing a solo author? Um, because, you know, if you don't have a, a strong motivation to do it on your own, one, you might not end up doing it or it'll end up a lot worse. Um, if, if there's people out there who are doing research in similar ways and you think they can really contribute, it probably makes sense to, to invite them. Um, especially if you already have a, a working relationship with them. So I, I think first, just, just understanding why, why you're doing this. And if it's a good reason, then that's awesome. If you want to prove to yourself that like, I can lead a project from start to finish. If your university, you know, strongly views people who have, you know, published something solo author before going up for tenure, like that's a good motive. Um, whatever the motive might be, just like understanding why is it that you are looking to do that. Um, and then I think the thing I mentioned earlier about deadlines, um, again, because you can very easily, especially if you have other projects going on and you're teaching and you have service roles, like the first thing, if, if nobody's waiting for for your own paper, but yourself, it's really easy to fall off those deadlines. So set the deadlines um, and kind of treat yourself like you are your own co-author. So like, just like you wouldn't want to let your co-authors down by missing certain deadlines and deliverables, like don't let yourself down. Cause again, it's just going to, you're just pushing work down the road or doing work for no reason. Cause you're never going to end up publishing it. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, it, if I, if I reflect on like my, my solo author journey, it's a lot easier for me to do it today than it was for my first one. Um, because you just know the, the entire process so well, especially if you use similar methods and similar theories, that just makes it a lot easier. Um, so I think especially like if, if you've never published before, I, I think maybe I would advise people to help publish first with somebody who's published before. It probably makes the whole process easier. What would 22 year old all conference, great, fantastic swimmer, Liz Delia think about where her career is and where things are now almost 20 years later. And I say that as for both of us that were in that same age. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a big question to throw on me. Um, <laughs> you know, I've always been like really, really motivated, um, in like even just the littlest things that I do. Um, so I think, um, you know, 22 year old me, would be impressed, but also have no idea like what what is a JSM, what is an SMR, um, but but not be entirely surprised because again I've just always had that like hardworking, motivated like don't back down um, kind of approach to things, and that's just probably a lot to do with like my upbringing and having parents and siblings who you know made me believe those things. I'll take that as assume that you're you're a competitive person by nature. Like this is your challenge. Yes. Yeah. Silent. I'd say like silently competitive. So yeah, yeah. I do want to point out we're talking with a solo author legend, and she is supposedly an incredible individual medley swimmer. So I want to point out maybe you know maybe there's some connections there. Not that I know anything about the swimming world, so please don't ask me about individual medley and what that even means. That just but means you can swim all the strokes decently, or you're not horrible at any given stroke. So. See, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, but I'm not saying at the same time. But Liz Delia, thanks for joining us. I appreciate this. I know it's during your sabbatical, so this is probably 
very big faux pas on my end. So hopefully you can enjoy some R&R immediately after this. But I will ask, since we're hope, my goal is that this will grow your network, even if it's incrementally, where could people see you next at a conference so they might be able to talk to you? Um, let's see. I, I'm at NASM pretty much every year. So uh, NASM. So, that, so that's June. Hey, is. yeah. Minnesota. There, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. Well, thanks, Dr. Delia, for joining us. And thanks for, for doing this. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. But thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of State of Sport Management. And we hope you join us for the next one.